Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and it's good to be with you today. We are continuing our lessons from the Book of Romans. Now, these lessons come from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly for the spring quarter of 2021. And today's lesson is from April 11th. Our lesson is titled, Life in the Spirit. And we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, the first 17 verses. The theme of today's lesson. In chapter 8, Paul lays out a vision of an abundant life, a victorious life, a life of freedom, a life where we are sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. But this life is not possible through our own strength, through our own discipline. It's only through the abiding presence of the Spirit. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer uh, found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. If you keep up with popular culture, with what's going on in movies and television and things like this, then you know that zombies have been popular for quite a while now. They seem to be everywhere, in movies, in TV shows, video games, part of late-night comedy routines, all of this. Now, in real life, there's not a lot that's attractive about zombies. Zombies are the undead. They're basically rotting, putrefying corpses that somehow are still moving. They're still animated. And Paul uses this image to show us what we are like in our sinful state without Christ. Over and over, Paul presents the idea that we are dead without Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins. He talks about the mind governed by the Spirit or by the flesh is death. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So Paul is saying, The unsaved man, man without God, is a walking corpse, rotting, putrefying, even as he's moving around on this earth. Now, in Romans chapter 8, we have one of the greatest chapters in the Bible one of the most beloved by theologians, by regular believers alike. And it gives us a glorious vision of the life that's possible in God. Paul ended Romans chapter 7 with really a gut-wrenching question. He says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from the body of death? Chapter 8 is his answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in chapter 8, Paul lays out several dominant themes. These are crucial principles of life in the Spirit, and Paul wants every Christian to understand these. First of all, Paul wants us to understand that the life of the Spirit is a life of abundant victory, a life overflowing with God's presence and blessing, a life of ultimate prosperity. Chapter 8 
begins with, therefore, there is now no condemnation. And it ends with the idea, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So in this chapter, we see a a glorious promise here. Now, the first seven chapters of Romans, Paul has been painting a bleak picture. The sinfulness, the evil of this present world. How the law is weak and unable to free us from this. But now, Paul explodes a bombshell of hope. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can be held against us. There's nothing that we need to worry about. How many times have you been driving and you see a policeman pull in behind you with it in your rearview mirror? And even if you're driving perfectly within the law, you're doing nothing wrong. There's always that kind of anxious feeling that gets to you where you think, uh-oh, is he going to find that I'm doing something wrong? But Paul is talking about here a complete confidence, a complete relaxed feeling of fully enjoying the presence of God. We don't need to feel any kind of condemnation or worry or anxiety. Paul assures us of our full birthright as God's children. He gives us this amazing promise. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. The promise is we will share in Christ's glory. Over and over, we see Christians who live a life far below what is possible, far below our birthright as Christians. We are living in the same failures, the same traps, the same addictions as those in the world. But Paul presents an amazing life here, a life possible through Christ, where we are transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.19, Paul writes, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Paul makes an incredible statement here that we are co-heirs with Christ. And I have to admit, I'm not sure exactly what all this means. But think of the promise that is inherent in this. We inherit everything that Christ inherits from God. Christ is God's beloved Son, He inherits everything as a son, and everything he has a right to as a son, we inherit as well. We have a right to it. It becomes ours. What belongs to Jesus also belongs to us. Now, in the musical Annie, we see a great example of what it means to become an heir. You know the story. Annie goes from being an orphan, from being penniless, to being the heir of Daddy Warbucks, to being rich beyond her wildest dreams. In the orphanage, she's singing, It's a hard knock life. But then she reaches the home of Daddy Warbucks, and when she moves into his mansion, she sings a song, I think I'm going to like it here. And so we get the idea of what it means to inherit something like this. Now, secondly, Paul wants us to understand The life of the Spirit is a life of freedom. It's interesting. In chapter 8, Paul doesn't give a single command or imperative. His emphasis instead is the idea that living by the Spirit is a life of freedom, not a life of bondage and a life of things that we have to do. Life in the Spirit is not about obeying a set of rules. 
It's fellowship with the Spirit of God Himself. Now, man, in his previous attempts to be righteous, had based them around obedience to some type of law. The Jewish people had the Mosaic Covenant, that law that was given to Moses. The Gentiles had a natural law that was written on their hearts. They knew what was right. But in both cases, the idea is to please God by following the rules. And this leads to a bondage. It's the life of a slave. But Paul gives us a totally new path to righteousness. We are made righteous through the death of Christ. There are no rules to follow, requirements to meet. God acts out of grace to give us righteousness. This is freedom, the life of a son, not a slave. Paul's third theme, he wants us to understand this life is possible only through the Spirit who lives within us. It's the indwelling presence of the Spirit that accomplishes all of this. Paul wants them to understand the Spirit is a living presence in our lives. We have the closest possible intimacy with God. God's Spirit actually inhabits us. And Paul himself describes this as a great mystery of glorious richness. Colossians 1.27 To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Now, the Holy Spirit is often the most ignored member of the Trinity. We tend to focus on the Father, on the Son, but think of what it now means that we live with the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people experienced God as the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, as a presence that inhabited the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, but a presence that was unapproachable. To go into the presence of God was to invite death, to be struck dead. Now, during Jesus' day, people were able to experience God in the person of Jesus Christ. God was a man physically present with them. They could see Jesus. They could hear Jesus. They could touch Jesus. All of this without the fear of being struck dead. But now Paul is telling us we have an experience of God that's much more intimate even than this. We have the Spirit of God actually within us. God is no longer out there. God is inside. Paul wants us to know the Spirit is a living presence in our lives, and it makes this tremendous life possible. He says, walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. So in the Spirit, we have an asset far more precious and valuable than we can ever know. Finally, Paul wants his readers to understand the life of the Spirit is the definitive characteristic of the Christian. It's the life of the Spirit that identifies us as Christians, that validates our Christian experience, that shows us we are children of God. Paul wants it to be clearly understood. Being a Christian is not a matter of going to church or obeying moral standards, keeping moral rules. It's not about being a good person. It's not about believing in certain doctrines. A Christian is one who has the Spirit of Christ in them. Romans 8, 9. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. It's essential that we understand this. So many people in our culture see a Christian as just basically a slightly improved version of a non-Christian. Essentially, they are the same, except a Christian professes a faith in Christ, a Christian goes to church, you know, they keep basic moral laws. But many in our culture have no awareness of the Christian as a person in an ongoing living relationship with Christ. They have no concept of what it means to have life with Christ. It's outside anything they can imagine. Now, in chapter 8, Paul spends the majority of this chapter detailing two big ideas. His first big idea is, while the law is powerless to rein in the sinful nature, the law is powerless to make us pleasing to God. The Spirit, however, is powerful and effective to make us righteous. Paul's argument is that man in his natural state lives in the flesh. That is, our sinful human nature. It's our nature apart from our nature unaided by Christ, a life dominated by the selfish desire to fulfill our human wants at all cost. It's the enthronement of the self, putting our wants, our wishes, our desires above everything else, above everyone else, including God. We see a good example of this in a quote from Woody Allen. Several years ago, a scandal broke where Woody Allen uh, had to acknowledge that he was having an affair with the adopted daughter of his longtime partner, Mia Farrell. Now, when the news of this broke, he justified the affair by saying, the heart wants what it wants. And this is the essence of what Paul means by the flesh. We are dominated by our human desires. We selfishly insist on fulfilling our desires, whatever the cost to others. The results of living in the flesh, Paul also makes clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. And Paul goes on and on. And these acts lead to our condemnation. This is what Paul describes as the law of sin and death. It's a fundamental truth of our existence. All of God's creation is built around this, that sin results in death. When we sin, we die. God told this to Eve way back in the Garden of Eden, and it was true then, it's true now. But Paul is saying there is now no condemnation. We are set free from the law of sin and death. Somehow, this law of death is annulled, it's canceled out, because of the action of a higher law, the law of the Spirit. And this, too, is a fundamental operating principle of our universe. The law of the Spirit says that when we are in Christ Jesus, Christ becomes a sin offering for us. Somehow, Christ becomes the payment for our sin. And this condemns sin. It negates the effect of sin in our lives. The idea is that the law of sin and death reigns unless the law of the Spirit is in effect. This higher law of the Spirit cancels out the lower law of the, of the flesh. 
similar to the way that gravity works. The law of gravity keeps us bound to the surface of the earth. We can't just break free and soar into the clouds unless we override it with another law. If we harness the power of a jet engine, if we take advantage of, of the laws of Newton's laws of motion, these will allow us to supersede the law of gravity, allowing us to break free from this earth. <clears throat> the Mosaic Covenant, the Jewish law, was unable to transcend the law of sin and death. This law could show us what righteousness was, but because it was weakened by the flesh, because it was weakened by the inherent selfishness of man without God, the Mosaic Law had no way to empower us to do the right thing. In fact, our sinful nature is so powerful, it's so entrenched in us, that when we're told something is wrong, we aren't motivated to avoid it. Instead, we are motivated to want it even more. But Paul tells us about a new law, the law of the Spirit. And this law is able to transcend and overcome the law of death. Because Christ was sent as a sin offering, as an atonement, then the law of sin and death is no longer in effect. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So, we have no condemnation because the righteous requirements of the law, the righteousness described by the law, is fully ours because of what Christ did for us. Paul's second big idea that he gets to in chapter 8, the life in the realm of the flesh is contrasted with the life lived in the realm of the Spirit. Paul identifies a cause and effect here. He points out that our mindset determines our lifestyle, the way in which we live, and this produces inevitable results. But before Paul gets into this, he makes it plain that humans are separated into two categories and only two categories. There are those in the flesh and those in the Spirit. And according to Paul, these are the only two options. You're either in the Spirit or out. There's no halfway. Stephen Cole points out that today, we often have the mistaken view that there are two tracks for Christians. First, there's the discipleship track. This is for those who are super committed, maybe even a bit fanatical. These are the ones who give up everything to follow Christ. They deny themselves. They take up the cross. They give up control of their self, their material assets, surrender whatever God asks them to surrender. And this requires, you know, a toughness. You have to suffer, but your reward in heaven will be great. And so we see this as the track of the one who aspires to be a saint. But there's a section, a second option, a, a track for the ordinary Christian what we might call the cultural Christian. This is the one who accepts Jesus as their Savior to make sure they go to heaven. But they consider themselves free to pursue their own dreams, their personal fulfillment in this life. They want the best of both worlds. They want to be a Christian without having to be gung-ho. 
to enjoy the fellowship of the church while still pursuing the American dream. Now, Paul wants us to know there are not two types of Christians. You are in the Spirit, the Spirit is in you, or you are still living in the realm of the flesh. He writes, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Paul contrasts two mindsets here, the mindset on what the flesh desires and the mindset on what the Spirit desires. He shows us the type of life that arises from each of these mindsets. And then he shows the inevitable results or consequences of that particular lifestyle. So, first of all, Paul begins by describing two types of mindsets. And Paul makes it plain that we play a role in this. We adopt a mindset. We opt for one or the other. First, Paul says, there is the realm of the flesh. This is when we have our mindset on what the flesh desires. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. This lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life, these are the physical cravings, cravings for food and pleasure and sex. It's covetous, it's self-pride. It's all the ways that we seek to fulfill ourselves rather than seeking God. This is what the flesh desires. Our lives are dominated by the desires of the flesh, those things that appeal to us as physical creatures. When we seek to maximize our pleasure and to minimize our pain. Now, there's nothing wrong in a lot of these appetites in themselves. They are legitimate human desires. But the problem is, when our minds are set on these, when these are the focus of our existence. But Paul also points out there's a realm of the Spirit. This is when our mind is set on what the Spirit desires. Now, to set our minds is to be absorbed by, to focus sharply on something. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what does the Spirit desire? Scripture teaches us that the Spirit desires God's glory. The Spirit's role is to witness to the glory, the beauty, the deep things of the triune God, revealing the full Godhead in all of His glory. Perichoresis is a term used by the early church to define the Trinity, and it uses an image rather than a formula, but it's the image of the three members of the Trinity embracing each other, permeating, containing each other, existing inside each other. Think of the Trinity really as kind of an eternal circle dance. Timothy Keller writes, Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, rejoices in the others, and this creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. And so we get the picture here of what the Spirit desires. The Spirit desires to celebrate, delight in, to take eternal joy in, 
the glory that is the Trinity, the beauty, the splendor of the holiness of the full Godhead. When we set our minds on what the Spirit desires, we are focusing our attention on the delight, the glory, the beauty of the triune God. And we see the effects of this in what it produces in us. Paul tells us that we produce the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, the Spirit desires to reveal, to celebrate the glory, the beauty, the splendor of God. When we set our minds on what the Spirit desires, we join this dance. We make God our total delight and absorption. We set our mind on what the Spirit desires. We set our minds on our total delight and absorption into God when we consider God to be the most precious. It's interesting, George Mueller wrote in his autobiography, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. This is what he's describing here. This uh, keeping our minds focused on what the Spirit desires. Then Paul goes on to describe how our mindset shapes our actions. Paul's point is that the mindset we adopt is crucial. It shapes our behavior. It determines the choices we make, how we live. When we live in the realm of the flesh, we have a life that's characterized by hostility and rebellion against God. It's a life that's lived in fear. So, the primary characteristic of the sinful mind is hostility and rebellion against God. Hostility can also be translated as enmity. It's to be an enemy of God. It's living in opposition to God. John Milton has Satan embody this attitude in his epic poem, Paradise Lost. He describes Satan's reasons for rebelling against God when he has Satan say, it's better to rule in hell than to submit in heaven. And this really is the essence of sin. It's not in our actions and our behaviors. These are only the symptoms. The core of sin is a selfishness, a self-love that must always be first, a self-love that cannot subordinate itself or its desires to anyone else, including God. It's a twisting, a distorting of our relationship to God. And this is what, in the Nazarene Church, we define as depravity, the corruption of our very nature. And this is characteristic of all men because of man's original sin. Scripture is very blunt about this. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Psalm 14, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. You know, Titus chapter 1 talks about, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Now, we want to look at these verses and think, well, you know, Scripture is exaggerating. It's wanting to make a point. Not every person is really like this. But Scripture teaches us a total depravity. Man is not basically a good person who occasionally may act selfishly. All humans, when they are without God, when they are unredeemed, are corrupt and depraved. It's true of all men everywhere, all the time. And this depravity affects all parts of man, the mind, the will, the emotions. Now, this doesn't mean that man cannot do any good thing. We know of unsaved people who give money, who perform acts of service. Maybe they even sacrifice themselves for others. But what it means is that nothing we do can be done to the glory of God because there's always a basic selfishness to it. There's always this core of selfishness in what we do. So no action can be totally free of this. No action can be done out of a pure, unmixed love for God or for others. There's always this dominating of the selfish nature. It's interesting, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Or in some versions, even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. And it contains the idea that even when we are intending to be kind, as depraved individuals, we wind up hurting others. We wind up being cruel. It shows us just how often our depravity fools us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and exceedingly corrupt. Who can know it? We're often blind to our own corruption. So, a natural man uh, does not accept these things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraved. Now, most of us, we don't want to recognize this basic hostility. We don't want to see this core selfishness in ourselves. But Paul is telling us here, it's not just that we don't choose to submit to God's law. He says, in our unredeemed state, we cannot submit. We are implacable enemies to God. And the reason for this is that God will not have rivals. God will not just be one of many. He demands to be absolute. This is essential to God's holiness, to His very Godness. To put something or someone else on equal footing with God is to diminish His value. God is infinitely precious, of infinite worth, and to allow Himself to be placed on the same level as another would be an insult to His glory, and God will not allow this. He will not allow Himself to be made less. So, in our natural state, when we have enthroned ourselves, there is no way that we can be anything but an enemy to God. And the results of this is that we live in fear. We live in this state of enmity, which produces this general anxiety. We live with this sense of unease, this knowing that something is wrong. It's interesting that the philosopher Pascal sums up the human condition in three words of anxiety, boredom, and inconstancy. He says the human condition is one of anxiety. We have an uneasiness. 
that we're not sure why it's there, uh, but we're always kind of semi-conscious of it. It's there in the back of our minds. And we flee this anxiety by seeking diversion. And for a while, our diversions distract us. But at some point, the diversion wears off. It becomes boring. And so we, keep, we seek out a new thing. This is inconstancy. We are flitting from one diversion to another. We can't enjoy our lives. We can't enjoy the now because we know that judgment is coming. But, Paul tells us, if we live in the realm of the Spirit, we can live according to the Spirit. We can live a life that's marked by obedience to the Spirit, where the Spirit shapes and guides our actions. Paul tells us we can put to death the misdeeds of the body, these sinful desires that are prompted by the body. So, we can put a restraint on our actions. We can choose not to indulge ourselves when we are in the realm of the Spirit. But we have to be led by the Spirit. We have to have the Spirit's guidance. You know, it's easy for us to rationalize around our own actions, to justify what we want to do. So we need the Spirit to provide a check on this, to provide an answer for our human wisdom. Now, when we live in the flesh, Paul tells us, we cannot please God. We are enslaved to sin. The result is death. Paul is telling us it's either God's way or nothing. There is not a halfway response. We're either submitted to God or we're living in opposition to God. We cannot make some type of accommodation. We want to work out a deal, a compromise, a give and take. We tell God, I'll give you this, you give me that. But Paul tells us death is an all-or-nothing state. You're either dead or you're alive. You can't be both. You can't be partly dead. Paul lets us know it's impossible for us to remain free. We will have a master. We will be a slave. And it's to either God or it's to sin. But we cannot be neutral. If we are enslaved to sin, the result is death. Scripture tells us over and over we are dead in our trespasses and sins. As dead men, we are incapable of doing anything good. We are incapable of comprehending the things of God. We are incapable even of believing in Jesus. But if we are living in the Spirit, we are adopted to sonship. We are children of God. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. And this is an amazing thing to think of us in this regard. Paul paints a picture here in Romans chapter 8 of an amazing life, a life that is promised to us beyond even what we can imagine. And so Paul lays it out for us, and he says, this is your inheritance through the Spirit, the Spirit that's working within you. You can be a son of God. You can be a co-heir with Jesus Christ himself. But many of us, we're living out our lives totally unaware of the inheritance that's promised us. You know, I've always been fascinated by examples of people who inherit a fortune. And especially if it's inheriting something from a dead relative that they never knew existed. You know, out of the blue, someone shows up and says, you know, 
you are now rich. So-and-so has died, and they've left you all of this money. And there are real-life examples of this. Zolt and Giza Pilati, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but they were Hungarian brothers. They were actually homeless. They were living in a cave outside of Budapest. They sold junk for pennies just to get money to stay alive. They ended up inheriting over $4 billion from a grandmother in Germany that they knew nothing about. Can you imagine? You're living in a cave. You're scrounging for pennies. And then all of a sudden, you inherit billions of dollars. But too often, our case is more that of Tomas Martinez. Tomas was also a homeless man. He lived in Bolivia. And he had an ex-wife. And one day, the police came to find him, to notify him. His ex-wife had died, and she had actually left him $6 million as an inheritance. The problem was, when Tomas learned that the police were looking for him, he thought they were there to arrest him on drug and alcohol charges, and so he ran away. They never found him. He never was able to claim his inheritance. So Paul is pointing or is painting for us a picture here in chapter 8. The inheritance that we have in the Spirit. The question is, are we going to claim that inheritance? Are we going to be like the Hungarian brothers and go from a lifestyle where we scrounge for pennies to the lifestyle of a billionaire? Or are we going to be like Tomas? Are we going to continue hiding in the slums unaware that we have millions of dollars waiting for us if we will claim it? So my prayer for you as you go into this next week, allow God to give you what He has promised. God has promised us a life in the Spirit if we will, we will turn ourselves, turn our lives over to Him. And so that's my prayer for you and for me that I take full advantage of this inheritance that God has promised. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this glorious salvation that you have provided through the death of your Son. We thank you that we can be redeemed, that we can be set free, that we can be made alive in you. We thank you that we can be your sons, adopted to sonship, made co-heirs with Christ. Help us, Lord, to take full advantage of our position, of our inheritance in you, to enjoy that life that you have made possible. We'll give you the glory and the praise in your name. Amen.